The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the University of California Board of Regents, or the Latino Anti-Disinformation Lab. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 4th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest is Dr. Jason Karlowish, physician and writer whose research about ethics and medicine meet in his latest book entitled The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. We'll be right back with his interview. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Dr. Jason Karlowish, Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics, Health Policy, and Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania and co-director of the Penn Memory Center, where he cares for patients. He uses the word care advisedly as opposed to treats patients. He's in neurology and extremely thoughtful and accomplished author with a new book out entitled The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. His previous book, a work of historic fiction entitled Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont, was the focus of his appearance six years ago, almost to the day on Ask a Leader. Dr. Jason Karlowich is everywhere you'd like to see a conversant bioethicist, radio networks around the nation, New York Times opinion section, and of course on Twitter, as well as the Senate Select Committee on Aging and the Department of Health and Human Services Subcommittee on the Inclusion of Individuals with Impaired Decision-Making and Research and collaborations with the American Bar Association, American Association of Retired Persons, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the State of Vermont, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, and the U.S. Government Accountability Office. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Greenwall Foundation and the Bar Association's Commission on Law and Aging. Dr. Cardowish comes to us today from his home in Philadelphia. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Dr. Jason Cardowish. Thanks so much, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, Thank you. Congratulations on a wonderful and important read. The Arc of the Alzheimer's Disease Discovery. It's a history of a series of clusters of leaps forward and stalls toward understanding, identifying, and dealing with Alzheimer's. The dark ages kept slipping in after inroads were made. So I, I want to take one segment out of that arc as it relates to what is being considered in public healthcare debate, federally speaking, and on the state level right now. So apropos now could be the story of how the evolution of uh, how the eventual adoption of Medicare first had to deal with the message of socialism creep. Could you just give us a brief history so we can think about how that eventually became codified and how we might breakthrough with a meaningful public health solution in 2021. 
The, the story of Medicare with respect to um, the care of persons with dementia is a sad story. And I, and I chronicle that and extensively in, in part two of the book called The Birth of Alzheimer's. You know, I mean, Medicare was established to pay doctors to uh, take care of older adults. And that focus on paying doctors to take care of older adults, you know, makes sense. It's, it's called, you know, keep people from having to dip into their savings accounts to uh, uh, onto bankruptcy because of, of medical charges. The problem, though, was um, for a problem like dementia caused by a disease like Alzheimer's disease, certainly there's some role, obviously, for the doctor, but there's a lot of role for other care, namely long-term care services and supports. And, you know, Medicare simply does not support long-term care services and supports. In fact, the statute is explicitly written to prohibit the funds for Medicare to be used for what's called in the statute custodial care, a brutal term that sort of implies the person's no more than a building in need of a janitor. And so as the sort of Alzheimer's movement uh, came together, one of its main foci missions in the early 80s was to create a system of long-term care services and supports, namely a, a system of social insurance to pay for long-term care, the same way we have a system of social insurance to pay for healthcare using Medicare. Well, the backstory there, as you point out, is a very interesting story. When Medicare was passed into law in 1965, that's the statute that explicitly prohibits custodial care. It was in the context of a very fraught debate over um, socialism, namely the opponents of Medicare, including the American uh, Medical Association, um, which opposed Medicare. The argument was essentially socialism, that if you create a system of uh, social insurance to pay for health care, you are beginning a slow creep of socialist policies, which will ultimately lead to the uh, Soviet takeover of the United States. In fact, that was one of the rhetorics used that, you know, this is the stepping stone to Soviet tanks rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue. I, I recount in the book how the American Medical uh, Association's Women's Auxiliary was enlisted to lead a letter writing campaign on Congress to prevent Congress from passing one of the earlier legislative versions of what would become Medicare. And the spokesman for that campaign uh, was an actor. The campaign was called Operation Coffee Cup uh, in an effort to rally women to have coffee parties to get their fellow doctors' wives, of course, because all doctors had wives, because all doctors were men, et cetera. I mean, the, 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 you, you can't underestimate the degree of sort of sexism here. Um, but anyway, Operation Coffee Cup was, was the spokesman for it was a, an actor named Ronald Reagan. And Reagan would speak about how, you know, Medicare was a, a vehicle for socialist takeover of America. Well, you know, fast forward to 1980, of course, Reagan um, had in between then and, and 1980 launched a political career and would be elected president of the United States. And as I recount in the book, entered office with a clear mandate. And the mandate was that government is the problem. If we don't shrink this government, it will destroy us. Uh, we need to shrink the size of the government. Uh, reduced spending, uh, Medicare and Medicaid were particular targets for spending reduction. They were viewed as uh, bloated with waste. Regulations needed to be removed or devolved to the states, etc. I mean, the context for this certainly was situated at the time America had just 
kind of been recovering from hyperinflation. You know, there was a perception that uh, the bureaucracy of the government was getting a little too big, et cetera. So, I mean, he capitalized on some perceptions and views that had elements of truth to them, certainly, but the policies he would pursue, while not explicitly anti-Alzheimer's, were policies that were in no way helpful for the families and patients uh, struggling to find long-term care, because there was no way in that political climate that you were going to pass a long-term care social insurance program akin to Medicare. In fact, they were struggling just to preserve Medicare against the uh, attitude of Reaganism. So we should all care about caring for people with Alzheimer's. As you point out, approximately 5.8 million had Alzheimer's in 2020. And as our population ages, more people live beyond their 70s and 80s. The number with this diagnosis will be 13.8 million by 2025. That's not far off. It's not just a huge number. It's a huge deal with the complexities, the heterogeneity you talk about of this much stigmatized disease. So that because one of those 113.8 million might be one of us, it's probably gonna be one of our loved ones. So let's have you talk about how Alzheimer's transformed from a rare disease into a crisis. Yeah, so that's the tagline of the book. And right. the, 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 so to develop that tagline, um, the history of the 20th century is how science and culture transformed a rare disease into a common disease, and then how politics transformed it into a crisis. And, you know, my earlier remarks around socialist fears of long-term care social insurance cultivated and kindled by Reagan are part of that, the politics that led to the crisis. And, and so, but, but before politics made it a crisis, it had to become a common disease. And the story of how it became a common disease is a story of science and culture working together. And I think the summary point I like to sort of take from that is over the course of the 20th century, um, a very important ethical foundation uh, came into wide acceptance in America, as well as other liberal democracies in particular. And that principle was the principle that all adults have an autonomy and that we owe um, each adult uh, respect for their autonomy, respect for their ability to self-determine their life, to live their life as they choose. And, and this is a late 20th century value. I mean, even by the mid of the 20th century, vast classes of people, even in liberal democracies, were not allowed to fully exercise their autonomy. You know, there were women were certainly just kept from certain kinds of jobs, just, you know, things that women couldn't do, even by law. Um, a wife was the property of her husband under certain laws of coverture. Um, it, based on your skin color, uh, there were certain places you in America, if you were black or brown, that you couldn't eat at, let alone go to school. Persons of LGBT um, identification were viewed as ill. So in that kind of milieu, the argument I make is it's hard for a disease like Alzheimer's disease to be seen fully as a disease. And we say, well, anyway, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, you know, well, the stereotype of dementia is someone who needs help with basic activities of daily living, like bathing, dressing, and grooming, and feeding. And certainly late in the course of dementia, that is the problem. But for much of the disease, the problem is difficulty self-determining your life. Early in the disease, problems like choosing off of a menu, deciding where you want to go on vacation, organizing the vacation, and traveling there. 
so these are things that was sort of daily quotidian things we do to exercise our self-determination. So my point is, if you don't have a society that widely recognizes everyone has a right to exercise his or her self-determination and live the way they want to live, it's hard to see the loss of self-determination as a problem. It's hard to see it as something that we should try and prevent, something that we should worry about. But by the middle, late 20th century, I think there was enough recognition that self-determination is something all adults should enjoy that conditions like senility, namely just extreme old aging, there's nothing you can do about it, who cares, suddenly became unacceptable. And science then stepped in and said, if you look at the brains of these older senile adults, they have what looks like pathology in them. And that pathology very well could help explain why they are senile. And so maybe instead of saying it's extreme aging, we should call this a disease. And once you call it a disease, you take it from sort of a private problem with the American family to figure out and say that American medicine now must diagnose, treat, and most importantly, research these patients, now they're patients, in order to help them self-determine their lives and not suffer this loss. So that's the sort of story in a, a bit more than a nutshell, perhaps, um, maybe a coconut shell, bigger. That's the story, if you will, of how a rare disease, uh, Alzheimer's was considered seen only in young people and not frequently, and that still is the case, how that rare disease suddenly became the explanation for the very common problem of senility and and then and how science and culture work together to do that. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Dr. Jason Karlowish, professor of medicine, medical ethics, health policy, and neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he is here to talk about his very new book entitled The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. Well, the autonomy, I want everybody to hear that in bold font, because the crisis is a myth to us, Dr. Carlos, when I'm in conversation with people dealing with their elders, and autonomy is like the raging show going on, and there's, there's everything mentioned about it without it being identified as autonomy and something to be revered, respected. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, one of the... Um, pleasant sort of experiences I've had since this book has been published is the conversations I've had with patients and caregivers where in some sense what I have picked up is you've said back to me what I have been trying to say for so long and what I've been feeling. Namely, you're right, this is a disease of autonomy. That's what makes it particularly awful. That's what makes it a disease. Yes, absolutely. You know, by by definition, all diseases are awful. That's just baked into the definition of disease. If a disease isn't bad, if it's pleasant, then it better not be a disease or we're a bunch of masochists or sadists. So that's what makes this a disease, I think, in its full and entirety. And it also explains, I think, the particular nature of the challenge of being a caregiver. Because the challenge of being a caregiver isn't just about the tasks, that custodial aspect of caregiving, you know, time and task. The challenge of being a caregiver is that you take on a very morally intense role. And that morally intense role is you have to now assist someone else to exercise her autonomy, to exercise her self-determination. 
That is a morally intense task. Moreover, it becomes, if you will, an existential dilemma because in the act of helping someone else to exercise his autonomy, you find that you're surrendering some of yours. You know, you're giving unto them so that they can be fully who they want to be as best as they can. And that I think is the dilemma of caregiving, namely existential dilemma of you want to do everything that you possibly can for the other person, but at the same time, you're trying to live your life. And it is a dilemma in the true sense of what a dilemma is, namely you can't have both. Choices must be made, compromises must be had, tragedy is inherently baked into the equation, if you will. And everything I've said, it's in the book, number one, but everything I've said when I, I have found readers come back to me and say, that's exactly right. That, that is what I am experiencing. And just to develop the point a little bit more, I think for many of them, it's why they get so angry at the way they're treated by the healthcare system in American society, because it's just sort of like, oh, well, you know, families do what families do and, you know, carry on and whatever. And it's like, well, no, no, <laughs> you don't get it. This is an enormous moral challenge an enormous existential crisis. And, you know, we're left to figure it out on our own in the healthcare system and in the long-term care system. And so well, I think it's the call to action that I have in the book. It is, it is, all the entire book is. Well, to one minor point and then back to a larger general point, I'd like to mention this, there's a loathsome communication style I witnessed with caregivers, actually to my own loved ones, and I call it, Dr. Carlos, I call it geriatricizing. I don't, I think you can put that in your uh, second edition. You can use mm -hmm. that word. Well, I, 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 um, I think what you're talking about is, is sort of the, the sort of awful way that many people speak to persons living with dementia or older adults in general. And it's sort of like this, you talk like this, and you the, say, hi, Claudia. The first person, plural. Yeah. How are we, Claudia? It's this sort of up-talking, slow. Um, loud. Uh, somewhat loud um, uh, baby talk in some sense. And so that, that to me is just, a, it, once you communicate in that way, no matter what you say content-wise, no matter what the semantic content is, the, the messaging of it just destroys communication. I mean... It, 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 and access you're, you're just you've just undermined your access to that well it's that just others it's just others the person yep. um it, i mean the, the extreme other side of it is people avoid the person they don't talk to them at all i mean i have family members who have told me that you know they brought their relative for example to see a doctor and the doctor talks about their family member in front of the family members if the family member wasn't there or, or was i don't know deaf or something you know like they just completely ignore the existence of the person. The other weird extreme of that is some doctors in a desperate effort to sort of acknowledge the personhood of the person with dementia won't talk with a family member. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and you talk and, about that. All the communication. Yeah, so, you, so you have this weird kind of, you know, not, none of them, I think, are, are appropriate approaches. The baby talk tone, forget it. There's no role for that. I mean, occasionally there's a role for talking in a gentle way to someone who's agitated. But the default when you talk to an adult is to talk to an adult like an adult. So you've got that. And then you've got the, you know, I'm going to ignore the patient because I don't see them as capable of communicating. Or the other extreme, I'm going to ignore the caregiver because I so want to acknowledge the personhood of the patient. And I just told you, though, earlier that the patient and caregiver are an, are an enmeshed unit of autonomies, of extended minds, of relational autonomies, 
that I think it's just bizarre to think that, you know, you can just speak to one and ignore the other. I mean, obviously you maybe want some private time, but you have to sort of think of them as a dyad when you speak to them. Yeah. So communication is such a, you know, I mean, dare I say a fundamental part of being human and in the care of persons living with dementia and their caregivers, you know, even that is a fraught and often miserable experience. And when you've talked about that very intricate interplay between the caregiver and the Alzheimer's patient, the one really essential device is compassionate deception. And I've been privy to support groups that have unpackaged that, Jason Cardowich, about what compassionate deception is. And you bring it up. You might want to give an example in the interest of time, and I can ask some other questions. Yeah, so there's this idea of care called loving deception, namely that there are some times when uh, telling a lie is the appropriate thing to do to care for someone. And it's a morally fraught activity. I, I don't proscribe it, but I think like other kinds of treatments, it needs to be seen as risky and uh, used with very great caution. And, you know, a classic example of loving deception is a person living with dementia, advanced stages of the disease, who turns to their spouse and says, you know, when's mother coming home? You know, mother, of course, has been dead for decades. How do you respond to that? Well, the loving deception approach is to say, um, uh, she'll be home in an hour <laughs> um, and try to move on from there. Um, this is to be juxtaposed, of course, to telling the truth, which is, you know, mother's been dead for 56 years. I think the default is to tell the truth. But the problem, of course, in the lives of persons with dementia is sometimes they say, what do you mean she's dead? And then they, they get very upset. You know, why didn't you tell me, et cetera, et cetera. Or they ask the same question over and over again and get upset over and over and over again. And I certainly have had patients where that's the case. And but a loving deception is the way you sort of mitigate that problem. I do describe, though, in the book, the work of a theater arts scholar named Anne Basting, who off, kind of offers a third way, if you will, which is the idea of creative care. And, you know, um, I think, I, and I describe that in the book. It's wonderful, yes. Yeah, so the creative care approach is to kind of see, to not so much focus on the truth or not the truth, but rather what kind of truth do we want to create? And the emphasis there is create. And so, for example one's mother coming home, well, then the creative care approach would say, well, if she were coming home, when she came home, what would we do with her? Or what is it that you miss about mother? In other words, it's to ask a question. It's not to answer with the truth or a lie, but it's to reply to the question with a question. It taps and, value in the relationship. It, it, and it taps creativity. I mean, the yes. fundamental premise Anne builds from in her, her argument is the idea of improv. I mean, the idea of improv is yes and. You know, you've said that and I'll now say this. Yes and. I heard what you said. I acknowledge it. And what about this? So, you know, a person with dementia turns to their spouse of 46 years and says, you know, we're, we're together so often we ought to get married. Well, of course, we've been married for 46 years. Well, another, the loving, the creative care approach to that would say, well, if we had a wedding, where would it be? And and let's create that wedding ceremony, you know. And so I offer that creative care approach because what it does is it taps into the life and the mind of the person with dementia and asks them to create a world. 
It may be a world grounded in truth. It may be a world grounded in fiction. It probably is a world grounded in, frankly, a mix of both. And it's a world that they're creating. And so I, I, as a clinician, I've now more and more adopted that approach into my practice. And, the, and as a teacher, I'm more and more teaching that approach that, again, Anne Basting describes it in her book, Creative Care. I, I highly recommend it. And I'm imagining, Jason Carterwish, how the imaging of the brain would look like, how, what sorts of sectors it activates, how that creative uh, engagement, creative diversion, creative deception, whatever terms anybody wants to use, how, how, what parts it activates and it sort of creates a, a healthier functioning of various sectors of the brain. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I hear your point. And I, I think, you know, we shouldn't wait for science to prove that to have to then say, well, gee, we should engage in creative care. But having said that, though, I think most of us would agree that engaging a brain, tapping into its abilities seems to be a way to keep a brain to function. Alternatively, for example, social isolation, banishment, solitary confinement are ways we punish a brain, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I think, and in someone whose brain is, dare I say, damaged by Alzheimer's disease, one could make a good argument, and I don't need science to prove it to me, that taking a bit of extra effort to engage that brain could potentially be helpful for it. Right. Uh, but again, I, I wouldn't want to make a policy of until we prove that creative care benefits a brain you well, know. if it's a brain or just the vital signs, just to be more fundamental. That, yeah, but, but as I say, you put an infant in an elder's arms, their blood pressure goes way the heck down. It may, it may. And if it does, that's a good thing. If it doesn't, because they're very scared of the infant and it goes up, then take the kid away. You know, yeah, but right, I, right. But try, but try. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the, um, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about geriatricians. And, and as you point out in the book, in various places, geriatricians are special and we have a shortage of them and yes, one of an few, e yeah. even larger shortage of good ones. So how hopeful are you, Jason Carter, that the U.S. will incentivize the right people to take up to master this field in medicine? Well, let me make one qualification there. I, I do not make any judgment about some geriatricians being bad and good. I, I, well, I, I'm, 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 I'm borrowing from what other geriatricians have been telling me. So I'm sorry. This, geri this geriatrician is a geriatrician, and I think I've got a great set of colleagues, um, and uh, they do great work. Um, I do think uh, that my colleagues in geriatrics need to be a little bit more skilled in the diagnosis of cognitive impairment, particularly when it's mild. Having said that, they're excellent practitioners in the care of persons living with dementia. Indeed, there really is no one doctor who's adequately trained in the usual American medical training system to really take care of persons with dementia from diagnosis to death. You know, it's really a, a field that's still being created out of neurology, psychiatry, and geriatric medicine. And that's a problem, which gets to your question, which is, you know, what's it going to take for America to create Alzheimer's doctors? Because there really is no such thing as an Alzheimer's doctor, be, the way you can train to become a cardiologist an orthopedic surgeon or an ophthalmologist. There, there isn't. Um, and like I had to sort of do my training in geriatrics and then do additional work. So what's it going to take to finally have America make it as easy to become an Alzheimer's doctor as it is to become a- An uh, oncologist. Or a dermatologist. Deals with specific cancers, right? right? Right. And the answer to that is, is that unfortunately in America, a disease doesn't fully exist until it has a business model. And by business model, I mean just that, that people can make money off the disease. And that's just the way it is in America. If a disease is a money loser, it has a hard time gaining traction 
um, in the American medical system. And especially a disease that's as costly as this disease in terms of the time and effort needed to take care of it. My typical new patient visit takes about an hour. Follow-up visits often take about 30 minutes. You know, in addition, I've got a team of social workers who I work with who are essential for providing care. I've got a cognitive a psychologist and cognitive testers that um, the psychologist oversees to be a good cognitive testing. I mean, that all costs money. And frankly, with the billing reimbursement that we see for this disease, if I lived off my clinical revenue, I'd have to shut the memory center down after about a month or two. Mm. That's just on, if, if this, so if that's the case, even the most earnest of physicians, as I describe in the book, just simply can't do it. I mean, I've managed to find one memory center out in the community that's not a clinical trial shop and not a university affiliated research shop like ours. And that's the Peggy Knowles uh, Memory Cares in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and I chronicle her story where yes. I mean, she, like many women that I chronicle in the book, and I think Alzheimer's disease, especially in the late 20th century is the story of women. She, like many women just said, you know, I know you think I can't do it, but I'm going to do it. And boy, does she do it. She's amazing. She's a force. So the stigmas against aging in general, Alzheimer's seems to be really good at challenging our humanity to face another human's decline. Your book tries very hard to push back on this shortcoming. And I've interviewed Dr. Laura Mosqueda. She's at USC now, folks. You've heard maybe heard her interview with me. Uh, she attributes age discrimination as our discriminating against our older selves. What would you like to sort of bring up in terms of how you're you're dealing with stigma? Yeah, well, so in the book, I talk about the stigmas of Alzheimer's disease. It's one of the earliest sections of the book, and there's really three stigma experiences. There's the stigma that the patient experiences, the person with the disease, namely self-stigma. Um, they feel less of themselves. They feel like they should hide their diagnosis because if people know about it, they'll treat them differently, which indeed is often the case. Moreover, they begin to adapt their own abilities and their own skills and question whether they can do things. So that's the self-stigma experience. And it's sort of an interplay with a second form of stigma, which is public stigma. So public stigma is the ways people around the person living with dementia speak about them, feel about them, and talk about them. And I would say arguably the ground zero for the stigma of public stigma of Alzheimer's disease, public stigma of dementia is the zombie metaphor, the zombie mm -hmm. trope. The idea that persons with dementia are sort of dying before they're dead, death before death, uh, the living dead, et cetera. And that kind of rhetoric is all over. You know, you can find it. I even point out how a pharmaceutical company, Biogen, uh, for a while was using imagery that evoked the Phantom of the Opera type um, images of people. Oh, I'm glad I missed that. I missed that completely. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, they've dropped that imagery, fortunately. Ugh. Um, but anyway, so that so we've got self-stigma, public stigma, and then a third kind of stigma is spillover stigma. And the caregivers will tell you about this, namely that not only does their relative experience others distancing from them, but they, the caregiver, experience a distancing from others, et cetera. And so the typical story that my patients and family members will tell me is, you know, friends start to disappear, family grows distant, et cetera. And that is the stigma experience. And I think in the case of dementia, uh, in the case of uh, Alzheimer's disease, which causes dementia, of course, 
Um, I think that much of the stigma experience has at its roots the zombie metaphor, this idea that, you know, persons with dementia are sort of the living dead, et cetera. And I, I really try to push back against that metaphor and, and argue for the real need for kind of almost a, if you will, a cultural cure that we can do. We may not be able to cure the disease, but we can certainly cure our culture. Well, the zombie idea, though, it's it's hard to unravel that as as we know the sort of the arc of the caregiver's life with the Alzheimer's patient is there there's a gradual grief of losing that person so I think that's maybe maybe a negative feedback loop in that zombie stigmatization well I mean look there the zombie trope and um, there are aspects of it that you can see in persons with dementia the well, eyes wandering, wandering, um, troubles with communication, troubles with cleanliness, etc. So, you know, if you unpack what is a zombie, there are aspects of the zombie that you can see in persons with dementia. I, I just listed a few of them. Right. But the one thing that I would argue that distinguishes at least one thing that distinguishes the zombie trope from a person with dementia is the person with dementia has a mind they have some degree of moral experience and moral agency. They may be impaired in their degree of moral agency, their ability to self-determine, but they're not entirely lost from that. And even when that's degraded, they still have moral experience. They still have the capacity to feel pleasure, joy, anger, frustration, etc. And that mind is a human mind uh, because they're a human being for God's sakes. And so that one thing I think is what radically separates the zombie from the, if you will, the person with dementia. And in the book, I make great effort, particularly towards the end, to really make people think more carefully about the nature of the mind of a person living with dementia. Now, I get the caregiver, I entirely accept right. and acknowledge the caregiver's suffering that the mind of a person with dementia changes. And I fully acknowledge the caregiver's grief over the ambiguous loss that they experience when they are seeing their relative, their mother, their father, husband, wife, partner, different than the way they used to be, troubles recognizing them, enjoying things that they used to not enjoy or no longer enjoying things that they used to enjoy, forgetting core memories. I understand the grief there, the ambiguous loss that they're feeling, but what is not going on is the person is not becoming a mindless entity. They're not becoming a rock or a robot. And so I think that's the kind of conversation I try to stir up in the book is to think more carefully about this disease as a disorder of the mind, but it doesn't leave someone, if you will, mindless. And, and so therefore they still need to be treated as a, as a moral agent, which is, I mean, we give, we ascribe moral agency to things with minds. We may love our pet toys, but you know, they're not moral agents, but we love our pets because they are moral agents. They're alive. They have a living mind. So uh, to speak to that range of emotions you're talking about an Alzheimer's patient retains that may not be so patently clear. And one interesting takeaway I got years ago was, and it's, it's an odd, it's a paradox, it's an irony that the Alzheimer's patient, that although there's a loss in memory, they don't, that they always recall how someone else makes them feel. Um, I, I just, the, the, the scientist to me 
walks away from the word always. No, all right. Oh, well, you but, should. But walk just, away just that's, that's just the. But, but you're you right. Remember that always. That's what that's always goes on the caregiver. The and the. the well, so people. I think the, the it, in these in the neuropsychology of memory, it is correct and it has been experimentally proven that even if someone doesn't um, encode certain key episodic facts of an event they separately encode the emotions that surround that event. And that's been shown experimentally. And namely, I don't know your name. I don't even remember key aspects of your biography. But or I really, the relationship. Maybe. But I really feel good around you or, or alternatively, I really feel scared around you. That's a, that is a very well-described phenomenon that basically what our brain does is it puts bits of a memory, if you will, into very separate, if you will, um, uh, encoding bundles. And, and there is, it is the case that in persons with um, dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease, as well as other diseases, um, that we see this phenomena that they may not know the, the biographical facts of an individual, but they will retain the emotional aspects of that memory. And that's why I was saying that there's hazards to people using that geriatricizing form of communication is this Alzheimer's patient will, they'll, there will be that. They'll pick, up on, it. Yeah, they'll, they'll pick up on it that I'm being yeah. talked like an idiot. Yeah, exactly. Well, and let's talk, uh, well, autonomy, and then there's tech literacy and aging. Jason Carter, how do you deal with the challenges of rapidly developing tech, which is increasingly integrated into patient care, it sort of giveth and it taketh away as far as what the Alzheimer's patient maybe is able to maintain mastery of, but it's also, there is a remote connection that can be maintained in some of the, the clinical aspects. So that's a, tech and aging are a complicated sort of other path. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. So I had this whole chapter called Caring for Each Other uh, in the fourth part of the book, and much of it's about tech. And I'm very bullish about the promise of technology to improve the care of all of us, you know, who need care, and in particular, the care of persons living with dementia. And I detail a number of the promises of technology for monitoring and detecting cognitive impairment. Having said that, though, as, as I sort of open that chapter with a quote from uh, Shirley Turkle, whose her book Alone Together, we, you know, where she asks the question, you know, we must ask whether technology expands our capacities and possibilities or does it exploit our vulnerabilities? And I, I think what she's getting at there and what I try to get at in the chapter is that one thing that technology can't do is it can't be a human. So for monitoring and detecting, for providing certain aspects of care, like dispensing medications, et cetera, technology is of enormous benefit, but there's something about technology and let's get to the point, artificial intelligence, it's just that it's artificial. It's not natural intelligence. So it doesn't have the full range of human experience and agency that a caregiver exercises. And I do think we have to be sort of measured in our enthusiasm that technology is going to quote, solve the problem of Alzheimer's disease, because, you know, in the end, humans need humans to care for them. So again, you know, I am very enthusiastic about technology. I can say personally and professionally, I'm blessed that there's technologies that allow me to monitor um, my patients and, and frankly, in my own family, we're dealing with this. But I also recognize that that I you can't simply think that this will sort of remove the need of humans to care for humans. 
For those of you who just tuned in to Ask a Leader, for the full hour, my guest is Dr. Jason Karlowish, Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics, Health Policy, and Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's here today talking about his very new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It, published by St. Martin's Press. So we have this pandemic going on. I earlier referred to the arc of Alzheimer's disease research. The latest stall was the nation's, the world's attention to dealing with the COVID pandemic. How mm -hmm. has that focus set back perhaps attention to Alzheimer's research? Um, I don't think that the focus that the COVID pandemic has, has hurt public's interest in making progress against Alzheimer's. It certainly has been a distraction, but I think if you turn to folks and said, is Alzheimer's a problem, they'd say it is, and, and we need to deal with it. Certainly the federal funding for it has continued. I will say acutely the laboratories um, and research centers um, had a setback. There's no question that during these uh, lockdowns, the need for social distancing, the ability to go into the lab and do work, the ability to keep the research projects going was sharply curtailed. Moreover, even uh, our ability to gather data, you know, had changed telephonic methods, video methods compared to face-to-face, -face, and in particular, cognitive testing had to stop being done face-to-face. -face. Oh, yes. Mm. So it's been a real dent in our research. There's no question that for a couple months, things really got screwed up. Having said that, I think, Every center is getting back and roaring and getting ready to get roaring to work. And I'm very bullish that, that you know, they will and it will be, will be back to where we were very soon. I'm also very bullish that the American public supports what we want to do. In particular, I'm very enthusiastic about President Biden's repeated one, two, three times at least in major addresses. Uh, when he accept when he uh, claimed victory for the presidential race, his Thanksgiving address, and then his address to Congress recently, he has spoken explicitly about making great progress in uh, developing better treatments for Alzheimer's disease, as and and, and the, therefore the necessary investments to achieve that. So I'm bullish on Alzheimer's research and the investment America ha has made in the last few years, and I believe, under, given the words of President Biden, the investment will make going forward. Well, one, you could argue that his general relief packages that include funding for caregivers, it's a bit of a game changer. It could be, if legislated, if passed, it could be a game changer for Alzheimer's care. It could be. I think it's a start. I mean, it's been ignored in the last uh, administration and, and really kind of after the uh, of passage of the Affordable Care Act and the failed effort to include a long-term care uh, insurance program in that. Um, it's really been a, supporting America's caregivers, supporting long-term care services and supports has really been neglected in the last four to eight years. I think the Biden administration's uh, proposals around um, reinvigorating the economy and rebuilding the American infrastructure include supporting the America's caregiving infrastructure. And I don't quarrel with any of the proposals there. I don't think, though, that they go far enough. Um, but I think they're a start, and perhaps I'll be willing to say that they're the necessary political start that will allow something to happen to begin a conversation which has to ultimately lead to uh, expansion of the Medicare program to include long-term care services and supports.
not not to play it cute here, but you had a, like a 30, 45 minute session with him in the Oval Office. What, what, what would you counsel him with? And, and would you bring up the DARPA model or, uh, or some other model? So I would counsel him to press on with the uh, efforts the administration is making to remove the wait list for people to get services through Medicaid, to improve the reimbursement that goes to long-term care facilities to provide better wages for professional caregivers, and to set an agenda that um, acknowledges the financial burden faced by the American family to provide long-term care, to begin to think about a system of long-term care services and supports for the vast, neither rich nor poor, namely the middle class. On the research front, you mentioned DARPA, which President Biden mentioned in his uh, address. In his address, Congress. yes. Right. And what DARPA is, is a very nimble program that does very targeted, goal-directed, funded research to achieve very specific goals. Um, and it's been very successful to develop things like some of the key technologies around internet, GPS, and related technologies. The DARPA model for developing better diagnostics and therapeutics is certainly attractive. And, you know, I, I think we have to be careful, though, about goal-directed science um, that sets the goals too broadly and big. It has to be, I think, very either targeted on a you know, clear mechanism or clear technology or very clear, you know, A to B to C goals. In summary, though, I'm very, I was very encouraged that he sees an opportunity to rejigger the, um, if you will, science policy, so as to really assure we make the kind of progress we need towards discovering better diagnostics and therapeutics. So admittedly, it's a little bit of a leaping around. So uh, dealing with, with the COVID pandemic, how with the blood brain barrier being crossed by the COVID-19 virus and with what we're learning about long haulers and foggy brains, how does this complicate how you're, trying to diagnose mild cognitive impairment, among other sort of precursors of Alzheimer's disease? Well, I think, um, the experiences we have had and will have with, with quote, long COVID, namely the long-term implications or, uh, and, and consequences of a COVID infection, we're going to have to work those into our differential diagnosis when someone comes in with cognitive complaints, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, you know, I think medicine can step up to that challenge and we will. I think actually it all more adds to the importance in America to recognize the need to have physicians, clinicians who are well-trained to assess cognition. You know, it's a rueful copper lining, if you will, to, to the pandemic, namely it'll further add to sort of waking up America to the need to pay attention to cognitive health. You know, one of the reasons why you don't want to get COVID is not just because you can't go to work for a couple of weeks or whatever, but it may, it may hurt your brain for God's sakes. Um, you know, so to the extent that people now, you know, COVID has woke people up to harms to your brain, it's like, well, yeah, there's another harm to your brain. It's called Alzheimer's disease and related to diseases that cause dementia. So, you know, I, I, I have no, I wish we never had the COVID pandemic on a number for a long list. But, you know, if there's one lesson to be drawn from this pandemic among the many lessons, it's brain health matters. And, uh, you know, it's going to matter all the more because a lot of folks are going to just, uh, are unfortunately suffering um, some of the long-term consequences to their brain health, courtesy of a COVID infection. So before, I, I don't know which one you want to take up first, uh, about offering ways that we can prolong and maintain our brain health, or do you want to start with, take up the breakthroughs 
and the successes in preventing dementia. And they're sort of related, but I, maybe the, the global breakthroughs and successes first, and then to conclude with how we on an individual basis can maintain our brain health. Sure. Uh, in the first part of the book, a part called Alzheimer's Unbound, I chronicle how over the last 20 years, there's been spectacular progress in Alzheimer's research. In particular, there has been spectacular progress in um, developing ways to detect the disease in a living individual and to detect it long before even a person has disabling cognitive impairments or, uh, in a word, dementia. And, and it's really uh, just one uh, brilliant science. And I, I was able to interview some of these scientists and get them to tell me uh, their stories about how they got into it and what they did. And so we have now are at a point where we can really better chronicle in a living human being the unfolding of this disease and not have to wait until they're disabled and unable to cook a meal or balance their checkbook, et cetera. That's really exciting. Commensurate to that, there's been progress in discovering better therapeutics, drug therapeutics in particular, that go after the disease. They haven't yielded the same spectacular results for the diagnostics. In fact, the results have somewhat been sort of frustrating, if you will. Uh, but I think the arc is an arc of progress. It's just not bending with the same curve that the diagnostics has. But I think we should plan that someday this will be a druggable, treatable disease. But I don't think it's rational to think about it as, as like polio. All we need to do is just discover the vaccine and make it into something of the past or smallpox. I think, you know, like infectious diseases of bacterial infectious diseases or cancer, We'll develop better treatments, but we're not going to get rid of bacterial infections or cancer or heart disease. You know, I suppose in some messianic world we might, but in the real world I live in, that's not the case. So really inspiring progress in better understanding the disease and beginning, therefore, to develop some of the tools that can change the natural history of the disease. So we should count on it someday being a treatable disease or disease is. The other part of your question is, but, but you know, is there anything we can do now that keeps our brains healthy? And the answer is unequivocally and without um, a doubt, yes. And that's not a statement of sort of, you know, bland hope or, or whatever. I mean, good science has told us that over the last 40 years, the risk of developing dementia has been declining. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I thought it's only going up. It is only going up, but it's not going up at the same rate that we expected it to. In other words, there's still plenty of people with dementia, but they're not as many as we thought there would be. And in multiple studies, well-designed studies in this country and other countries have that same finding. This isn't a quirk of one study. Big longitudinal studies that measure people over decades have shown this finding. Well, what's going on? Why are there, why is the risk of developing dementia declining? And the answer is opportunity and access. In other words, when they look at what explains this declining risk, what the researchers find is that individuals who have had at least 12 years of education and in the years to follow access to good health care, particular cardiovascular care, are less likely than individuals who didn't have 12 years of education or who had spotty access to cardiovascular care or poorly treated heart disease. Those individuals um, who have those access and opportunity are less likely than those who didn't to develop dementia. Many of them still do. I've got plenty of healthy college professors coming to my clinic who have cognitive impairment, but the risk of developing it is lower. 
So, I mean, that's a story of things we can do now in this country and other countries to keep our brains healthy. And if listeners of Ask a Leader are interested, they should go to learn more about that. I invite them to go to the AARP's Global Council on Brain Health. It's a website that AARP organized that puts together what's known about a variety of lifestyle activities, behaviors, et cetera, that have been shown to reduce or maintain, uh, reduce the risk of developing dementia, otherwise maintain brain health, as well as things that just don't seem to hold up. And it's a very accessible website. You know, it's written for the public. It's, it's, it's very, very well done. I confess in full disclosure, I'm a member of the council. So, right. but um, still, nonetheless, I, I think it's, it's, it's sort of puts it all together there and I highly recommend it. So as we're watching more public debate about some criminal and social justice issues, it makes me think of though, there's clearly a disproportionate amount of trauma experienced by certain sectors of our society. Trauma is no damn good for brain health. That's correct, yeah, yeah, no. Um, and I think one way, one way we're gonna better understand that um, in addition, obviously, to understanding, you know, and better studying how chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, is the result of repeated head injury. It's different pathology and process than Alzheimer's disease, but but the end result is 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 is, is cognitive impairment. So, I mean, I think this nation is going to have a big conversation about you know head injury and sports and such that allow mental trauma. I mean, but facing a, but I, a you know, police officer. Yes, I, and that it's reinforced, it's shared, it's publicly witnessed. That's the kind of trauma I'm really thinking about, Jason. Right, and it's, right Claudia, and, and that's the kind of trauma I'm making the link to. So just as we've had an awakening to the fact that if you bang your head repeatedly, it's harmful, we're going to have an awakening because we're discovering that the psychological traumas that people are experiencing um, have the same kind of impact as repeated head injuries do. Namely, the chronic stress that's created from um, lifelong exposures to discrimination, for example, um, have, a, have, a, have an effect upon brain health. And I think one of the stories that's beginning to unfold and will unfold more in the coming decades is how the sort of risks of developing dementia seen in minority communities are in part explained um, by the chronic exposures to trauma from the microaggressions of racism in addition to the quality of healthcare as a result of social and economic insecurity. So much of, I think, the story of why persons of color in America have higher risks of, of dementia is a story of chronic social economic uh, deprivation and microaggressions, uh, more so, for example, than some sort of secret biological mechanism and whatnot. I, I think it's a lot about the environment and how people are treated decade after decade. Amen. Well, the problem of Alzheimer's, how science, culture, and politics turned a rare disease into crisis and what we can do about it, it's, it's a deeply affecting book, Jason Carter. It, it made me think of an author who turned the story of Dr. Keeling's discovery of parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. And I, it, it, he called it his play, Dr. Keeling's Curve. And I, I, I could actually see the problem of Alzheimer's as a play because of all those steps along that historic arc that you developed so well, it could broaden the reach of your work to get patrons to consider together the problems and solutions that you pose. I know the playwright George Shea is focusing on climate. I can't offer his services, but maybe, maybe it could be made into a play. What do you think? 
Uh, I actually see a couple of areas for a drama here. If there's a playwright yes. there who wants to talk, I'm open. There's a couple bits in the book that I think lend themselves. Very much. To, very, uh, very much. Well, yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time for this extended interview, Dr. Jason thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Claudia. Thank you so much. Uh, and greetings to all the listeners on Ask a Leader. Thank you. My guest was Dr. Jason Carlowish, Professor of Medicine, Medical Ethics, Health Policy, and Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania and co-director of the Penn Memory Center, where he cares for patients. He's here He's talked about his new book, The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. It's published by St. Martin's Press and available at any of your favorite independent book dealers. Thank you again, Jason Carlois. You're very welcome. Well, that's my wrap. Next week's show, we'll have an ensemble cast of political scientists to dissect the state's mapping of legislative districts throughout the nation. Talk about baking stuff into a system. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Okay, so you haven't heard me mention masks lately, but vaccines? Maybe bring a loved one to get their jab. I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true a few kisses ago. I remember you. You're the one who said I love you too.